If you happen to be listening to this while you're at Business of Software in Boston this week, my co-founder, Anar Volset, is there live on the scene in Boston. And if you'd like to link up with him, if you're interested in perhaps applying to Tiny Seed, or better yet, if you're interested in potentially investing in our syndicate or in one of our next funds, you should reach out to Anar Volset on Twitter. That's E-I-N-A-R. V-O-L-L-S-E-T. His DMs are open. Or if you happen to see him in the hallway, just say, hey, I've been a big fan of Mark Littlewood and the team at BOS since years. 2009, I think, was the first one that I, I did an attendee talk at. And then I spoke at the next event. And as always, we wish Mark and his team the best as they run their event this week. another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and this week I talk with Nick Swan, the founder of SEO Testing. We run through his experience launching a free tool, starting to charge for that, gaining traction, renaming the tool, getting a new domain name, rewriting the code base. It's a really interesting and fascinating journey of growing seotesting.com to 18K MRR. Before we dive into our conversation, I want to thank you if you have rated this podcast in Apple Podcasts. I've been trying to get to 1,000 worldwide ratings because there are so very few podcasts that have that number of ratings in the tool. And I believe when I started asking, we're around high 800s. And now I look today, 977 ratings. And a rating doesn't even need a review. You can just click five stars. So if you haven't rated this podcast, I'd appreciate it. Our most recent review is a five-star review that says, my favorite startup podcast. It's from Jazz Manders from Australia. I just spent eight and a half hours of a solo road trip listening to back-to-back startups of the rest of us episodes. Such a positive way to pass the time. I really appreciate that sentiment, Jazz Manders. And as always, these are the things that I bookmark and I read when I'm feeling discouraged, when I'm busy crying myself to sleep tonight. I think about these amazing ratings and reviews and I really do appreciate them. And they do help this podcast find more listeners like you. So thanks so much for helping out. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with the founder of SEO Testing. Nick Swan, welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us. Hi Rob, thanks for having me on. Excited to be on the show that I've listened to since the beginning, I think. Long time listener, first time caller or something, is that what I've got to say? Yep, something like that, (laughs) exactly. Yep, yeah, it's great to have you on, man. We've interacted over the years, because I I remembered you applied to Tiny Seed. You know, you're just one of the names that I recognize, right? Probably from Twitter or just MicroConf events or MicroConf Connect, whatever it is. And so it's been cool getting to know you over the past several months. I want to give the podcast audience a chance to find out you know, what you're working on and where you are. And to start, I want to ask, you're running seotesting.com and curious where the business is, you know, give folks an idea of, of where you're at in the entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, so we, up until now, we've been open with our numbers on Twitter. We do an update perhaps every quarter or so. And at the moment, so at the moment we're just over 18,000 US dollars monthly recurring revenue, um, just over 330 customers. There's a small team of us, so there's myself, Phil, who's joined as a technical co-founder, which we'll go into, and Tiago, who's joined to help with customer service or customer support and some content. And then we make use of some freelancers and contractors and so on as well when, when and where we need them. 
That sounds like a nice svelte team. I, I like those early days where it's like, what, three to five people and you're doing 20K MRR. Are you running at break even? Are you running negative right now, given that you have a bit of tiny seed investment? Yeah, in general, we're running in at break even. And that is mostly because kind of any spare cash we would put into kind of testing new marketing channels. We've got one since having a tiny seed money come in, we've kind of been back and forth and wondering what to do with it. So it's still sitting in the bank account right now, which is a nice, nice, nice feeling having it there as a safety cushion type thing. But we're going to kind of invest that in one-off projects or doing kind of one-off tests on different channels as well. So we're going to go through a website redesign that will be a one-off project and we'll put some the tiny seed money towards that. Then we're going to try some paid advertising channels that we'll put the money towards as well. So we will, in general, run negatively, I guess, but on a month-to-month basis, I kind of see it as being break-even. I realized I jumped the gun and didn't do my standard read the H1. I'm supposed to say your H1 is automate the reporting of page updates and changes, run SEO tests to see what works, track the performance of pages changed, tie your work to results in an exact and impactful way. You want to give like one example of how, I almost said webmaster, holy moly, a startup founder, an internet marketer, someone who's, who's thinking about doing SEO, like what would they use SEO testing for? Yeah, so it's a testing tool. That's kind of how we market it. That's what we've, we've called it. And we go through a bit of history of how we got to this point. But it's basically a tool for reporting how a page has performed after you've made a change. So how it's performed in the search results from a Google perspective. So we'll get the data before you made the change and then you can make your change and then t- compare it to the data after that change. So you can compare the clicks from Google, the impressions in the search results, the position of it and the click-through rate as well. It's interesting you say about the H1. So we've just changed that last week from doing a bunch of customer interviews. So it's uh, it's kind of in a testing phase as it uh, in its own right. But from the testing point of view of the tool, it's kind of ended up having two uses. So there is a testing aspect to it, and that's what a lot of customers use it for. So this is good if you're changing page titles, meta descriptions, and you want to test if the click-through rate improves from those new page titles or meta descriptions. But we found out again from customer interviews that a lot of people, and especially agencies, are just using it as a general reporting tool. So as part of their client engagement and their retainer, they're going to do some content refreshes on pages and things like that. And then so setting up a test, once they publish their changes, they can then show the client how it performed before they made their content refresh and compare it to afterwards to show how they're kind of making their impactful results and uh, giving them our return on investment and so on. Yeah, I find that so many internet marketing or online marketing SaaS tools We'll start with the idea of like, well, I imagine like a marketer at a company can do this or a founder, you know, in our bootstrap, like a solopreneur founder could use it. And over time, there usually becomes a use case for some agency to have some type of reporting or a dashboard or a client log. You know, there's some value to agencies. And sometimes that becomes the bigger and better part of the business, right? Because an agency as a, a marketer at a SaaS company or at a startup, there's one person and maybe they do one project at a time. But at an agency, if they adopt something and they have 10, 20, 30 staff, suddenly that volume and that usage and even the value to them could be could be superior. Yeah, certainly. And for a long time, it's been difficult for people doing SEO to kind of show the results of their work as well, because it takes a long time or it can take a while for Google to index new content for the results to kind of start showing through. So anything that you can do to show the impact of your work in a quicker and more effective way, rather than having to look at data every day in a search console and copy it and paste it into Excel and all those kind of things, you know, it helps people in that way. And I think, I don't know if it was on this podcast or another podcast I was listening to that said eventually all SaaS tools just end up with a big reporting section and their kind of use 
and eventual, you know, one of their benefits is the reports that come out of that tool. So we're at that point. <laughs> and yeah, it's good. It's been great. It's been great talking to customers and finding this out. And that's obviously how it's impacting us in terms of changing our H1 and how we're going to market it and talk to people about it as well. And you sold a prior software company before this. So what led you to start SEO testing? Now, for the listener, it wasn't SEO testing we started it. It was called Sanity Check. And we'll get into, we'll call it SEO testing for the rest of the interview, but we will talk about that name change and the thought behind it. So you sell your prior startup. Was it SaaS? No, so it was around Microsoft SharePoint. So it was kind of add-ins, web parts, kind of like WordPress plugins, but for Microsoft SharePoint downloadable bits of software and it was kind of in the enterprise software space but we weren't really an enterprise software company we we're a kind of small bootstrapped business again it grew up to about 20 people we started in 2007 i think i sold my shares in it in 2013 i kind of got to the point where i'd had enough of sharepoint i saw it was changing in direction in a big way so it was going more, a lot more cloud-based so there's gonna to have to be a big reworking of the kind of components and products that we'd built my co-founder brett still wanted to carry on with the business and so we came to an agreement where it was going to be a management buyout of my shares and we parted on good terms, which was good. The business is still going now and doing well, which is nice to see as well. But that gave me a bit of runway in terms of looking at what to do next. And what I find interesting is kind of new ideas, new business models, that kind of thing. So from um, Lightning Tools was a previous company. I play golf, so I thought I'm going to build websites for golf professionals. <laughs> Turns out they don't like paying money for golf professionals. How'd that yeah. turn out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I wished you'd have written in with a question here. I'd have been like, oh, I hate to tell you don't know, do things, but that does. That's well, I thought I like playing golf. I like going to golf courses. I can spend more time doing that and talking to golf professionals. It all sounds great. Um, totally. Yeah. So so that was an idea that didn't really work. So I ended up doing some. Uh, some affiliate marketing. So I built a voucher codes website, discount codes website. And that did really, really well as it went through Google updates and other people got impacted by updates and so on. And during that, I was doing lots of click-through rate testing. So we used the same page title uh, format across all our retailer pages. And so coming up with an, a better crafted page title could lead to a nice increase in click-through rate. It's all a numbers game, you know. You'll get 100 clicks, four of those would click on an ad or on a discount code and you'd get a little small percentage of each sale. So getting the page title right could make a big difference to monthly revenue and so on. So I started doing all this page title click-through rate testing and it was just taking ages to track all the results in a spreadsheet. So every day looking at the results in Search Console and so on. And I think it was through your um, SEO tool, that you made a big switch over from Google Analytics to Google Search Console for various reasons for your data. And so I think that made me think, oh, the Google Search Console API is something interesting to look at. And it was from there, looking at Search Console, first of all, there was only three months worth of data available within that tool. So the first thing I, I tried to build was just something that archived the data to put it in all into a database and so on. And then it was then it was then I realized that, hey, I can build some tooling around this testing thing to stop me having to look at the data manually each day, each week or whenever and do some reporting around it. And that's kind of how the tool came out of just scratching my own itch, really. Got it. And so you were building this for your own purposes with this voucher code website. So it was an internal tool, much like Drip was actually, right? It was an internal tool we built for ourselves and then realized this, this could be a product. And so did you realize there was more potential in SEO testing and, and you bailed on the voucher code or what, you know, what happened with that business as you, I, I guess I'll say, started focusing on uh, SEO testing? Yeah, the voucher codes sector is like 
any kind of affiliate marketing, it's like, it's a real cutthroat business. So people will do black hat SEO, everything they can do to get ranking in Google. And I was always trying, we were trying to do things the right way, but it was just really depressing seeing people buying thousands of links and ranking above you and Google doing absolutely nothing about it because it's just a, t a space they didn't really care about or want to touch or improve. So as kind of SEO testing or sanity check kind of gained a bit of uh, usage from others in the community and so on, I kind of diverted my attention to that. Because again, because it was a new business model and a new tool, I don't want to go to shiny object syndrome type thing, but I'd done affiliate marketing in that voucher code space for three or four years. And so SaaS was a good thing to move into, I thought, and a new thing to try out and learn. Yeah. And so then you scratched your own itch, which if you've heard me, I, I talk about this as like, scratch your own itch is a nice trait to have in a business you're starting, but I don't believe, it's not a panacea. It's not like, well, you just do that and everything works, right? It's just like Indie Hackers is littered with these, these projects of people who scratch their own itch and like nothing came of it because no one else wanted it or no one was actually willing to pay for it or you couldn't reach people at any kind of scale. So you had built something that you wanted. Did you do any validation beyond that or did you just start leaning into it and start marketing it to see if, if people wanted it? I just started leaning into it, to be honest. So I tried the approach of building things for other people, which was the golf kind of marketing website thing. And so <laughs> I know this is survivorship bias in terms of this story, but I was kind of of the mindset, well, if I just build, if I build something and it's useful for me and it's saving myself time, then that's a good result out of this. And so it was kind of bare bones SaaS. It wasn't, I wouldn't even call it a SaaS app. It was just a tool that you could register for. It had like the default bootstrap user interface, all that kind of stuff. And I was in a lot of S or still am in a lot of SEO communities at the time, Facebook groups and Slack channels and so on. And so I just shared it there and said, look, here's a free tool. Give it a try. Let me know what you think about it. And that's kind of where the initial feedback and initial user group came from. So that's interesting. So you did kind of validate it because you already, you built something for yourself. It probably didn't require a ton of polish to make a free tool. And you basically say, here's a free tool. Does anyone care? And if it had been crickets, maybe wouldn't have pursued it, but people signed up and started using it. And then was that your early, that was your early user base of people? Did you start getting feature requests and, and people wanting more to the tool? Oh yeah. Yeah. Early users. Yeah. As you know, they love giving feedback and feature requests and so on. And so the feature requests started to roll in. They were things, again, I was building an SEO tool. So it was things that was going to help me or were going to help me with my SEO work. And so a lot of the feature requests were good ones. And it was, I was able to build into the tool. And I guess we'll come into how that perhaps made us have to choose a position that the tool was going to go into at a later date rather than being a general SEO tool. But um, yeah, the good thing about the SEO community is people are outspoken and willing to give feedback and kind of get involved with free tools and help out. So, and yeah, always willing to try stuff, which is great. Yeah. And so at this point, it's very simple, right? It's kind of like one or two main features. It's the archiving of Google Search Console and tracking of results over time. Is that pretty much it? Pretty much it, yeah. So from that point of view, people just started saying, well, I'm doing this in Excel. Can your tool do that? I'm exporting all the data and then doing this in Excel. Can you build a report for me that will do that? And it was always like, yeah, that's a great idea. This is a great idea. Let's do it. I miss those days thinking about it, actually, because it's so much easier to build stuff quickly. <laughs> Where it's exciting, right? Yeah. I can crank this out in a day. I know. And people are like, wow, that's amazing. You've done it so quickly. <laughs> yep. And they're, yeah, because they're used to month long roadmaps or quarter long roadmaps or whatever. Well, and I also love the refrain of, I'm doing this in Excel. Can you build it? Because as we say often on the show, it's like every Excel spreadsheet is, an is a SaaS opportunity to some extent or another, you know? Yep. Okay, so then you have a free tool, you're getting requests to, for different reports. At what point do you think, I need to start charging for this? 
It's interesting. Yeah, I, I can't remember. So this is back in 2016, 2017. So it's quite a while ago. And so we went, it was like, a, it was only me working on it. It was probably five months as running as a free beta. So that's quite a, quite a period of time, I think. And it must have been at some point I was like, well, I need to start charging for this. I'm, I'm running hosting a server, that kind of stuff. And also I need to find out if it is a product that people are willing to pay for, because it's all well and good that people are using a free beta and so on. But if I want to take it to the next level, we've got to check that people are willing to pay for it. Yeah. The Paul Graham quote is, the hardest part is building something people want, right? And I've always tacked on building something people want and are willing to pay for. Because I've seen too many people build things that people want. They want to use it, but there's no actual you know, desire to pay for it. So five months isn't bad. You know, I have seen folks launch free tools, get a bunch of users, and then they either let it go on too long where it's a free tool or they try to charge for it and no one's willing to pay. You know, that might be called the solopreneur or the indie hacker trap of just like, well, I'm going to get as many people, you know, did you feel, as you were doing it, did you ever have that doubt of like, I'm giving away a lot. Am I wasting a bunch of time? Not really, because again, I was building a tool for myself. So I had that mindset of, well, if no one's going to pay for it, it's still saving myself time and my day-to-day SEO work. And so I always had that to fall back on. Because I certainly will have had those doubts, like, will anyone pay for it? That's really the justification that you're looking for. And for me, like, I just did, I enjoy building things that save people time, help them solve problems, and they enjoy using. And the kind of the, the monthly recurring revenue and the money that comes in from that is kind of by proxy of, of doing those things. So the money's good, obviously. <laughs> and the monthly recurring revenue is nice, and it's nice to see it go up. But I think it's just like a, a result of doing those those things in terms of building stuff that people find really, really useful. Right. It sounds like your happiness comes from the building, the making, the creating. And if you had infinite money, you would still build, make, and create. Is that right? I think so, yeah. I can't see a day where I kind of retire. <laughs> yeah. Um, like whatever happens, I'll still be working on things and coding on things. Maybe I might go back to the, the golf professional website idea and do it for free. But uh. <laughs> do it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so you have a free tool, you're five months in, you're thinking, I should start charging for this. And what like what's next? How do you come up with your initial pricing? And what was the rollout like when you told people I'm going to start charging for this tool? Well, I put together the plans and I started with a price and it was far too low. So that would have been, we did it on a per website that you're going to add to the tool kind of model and we scaled it that way. I think it started at $10 per month, which looking back on it in reflection, it should have been higher than that. But you're always nervous and worried and you want to get people on board, right? But we were all, or I was all ready to kind of turn the paid plans on, send out the email newsletter to say that we're, we're going to start charging. And we, but we had been warning people like as they signed up for the beta, that at some point this is going to become a paid product. But then we've got three small children and we had the news that we had to go to the doctors with one of our kids. And we went there on, it was a Friday afternoon and a doctor kind of said, right, you need to go straight to the hospital. Kind of didn't say what it was, but you kind of know it's going to be serious from that point of view. And uh, we were told that our daughter, who was three and a half at the time, was diagnosed with leukemia. So it kind of went from literally, it was a Friday, the Monday, I think I was going to turn on paid plans and launch that. And kind of that, so that turned everything upside down. Yeah, I can imagine. Really sorry to hear that. So did you postpone the pricing change? Were you just consumed with uh, essentially your, your fi- you have a family crisis going on? How do you react to that? 
it was just left as it was at the time. So for the first three days, we were just stuck in the hospital. We didn't leave just as they did tests on Isabel. Like literally as soon as we got there, she started having blood transfusions and platelet transfusions within two hours. So it was like a, a real whirlwind of stuff going on and a lot to take on board. Then we went from our kind of district hospital up to the main hospital in Bristol where they do all the children's cancer treatment and so on. And so we were up there for two and a half weeks. So I had my laptop with me. I could kind of do bits and pieces. I'd not announced to anybody that the, the launch of paid plans was coming. So it could just, it was just a case of, you know, just leaving things as they were and let the free beta kind of continue for a bit longer. But from a work perspective, yeah, everything was just on hold for two weeks. Thankfully, you know, I can, the story's got a good outcome. Isabel's treatment went really, really well. She's just a normal nine-year-old girl now, but it was obviously a stressful time. And uh, yeah, looking back on it. Yeah, I don't know how to summarize it really. It's difficult. <laughs> yeah, these are these hard things that we want to perhaps summarize in a, I'm glad there's a happy ending. We want to summarize it in like, well, it was a hard time, but I got through it, which is true. But there's also probably scars. I mean, look, I've been through with the deaths in, in our families and Sherry losing her brother to suicide. I've been through stuff that has completely decimated us. And I don't know that I'll ever heal from that <laughs> fully. Like there are still battle scars and and scar tissue that I think is just not going to go away for me. And has Isabel had any, like, has it, did it recur after they, they figured it out? And I don't want to say cure, but what is it? It goes into remission and then she's fine. Like, has it been okay since then? Yeah. So she's, but she's, and it's funny how you say she's lucky because, you know, and you kind of look back on it and, and say we were lucky because she had the most common type of leukemia from diagnosis and the most treatable type and so although it was two years of treatment and in and out of hospital on a weekly and daily basis, once you kind of get through the first six months, it's kind of like, it's called maintenance then. So she has like 18 months worth of small amounts of chemotherapy and, and kind of stuff like that. Once kind of like the intense bit of treatment is done, the, the biggest risk to her was kind of infection from other illnesses like chicken pox and, and septicemia and things like that. But thank, again, thankfully, she kind of got through all that without any big issue. The funny thing was, because as a family, we kind of closed in as a group and we couldn't go anywhere to soft play or swim in like the normal things you do as a kid. I think we ended up having kind of six months of normality and then COVID happened and it was all locked down again anyway. So when it did go back to being locked down, we were kind of like, well, this is almost like normal life for us. <laughs> Wow. What an interesting adaptive like advantage because you're like, ah, we've already been doing this. Yeah. And in terms of battle scars, it's funny what you're saying. Like I still have, and this is part of the reason for wanting to join Tiny Seed as well. I have issues with long-term planning because for such a long period of time, we would make plans or I, and I would make plans in terms of what I want to do with the product, set some goals, things we, we want to try and accomplish and where we want to get to. But then Isabel would spike a temperature we'd be in hospital for a week and kind of all those plans will get thrown out the window. And so I still have an, an issue with kind of thinking long-term. Kind of joining Tiny Seed has been one of the reasons for doing that was to kind of set some more lofty goals, you know, think a bit bigger, think think about perhaps where we can take the business to. But again, it was just like a case of, right, Isabel's treatment's finished, we can get back to a bit of normality. We've booked a holiday and so on. But then COVID hits and <laughs> lockdown, holidays cancelled. And so like I can see like, the things that was affected me from Isabel's illness, like I can imagine it's affected other people in terms of long-term planning and stuff like that. It's interesting. Yeah, well, obviously glad things that worked out and, and, you know, amazing to be working with you with Tiny Seed to help you think more long-term about stuff. I'm curious, so two and a half weeks, you're in the hospital and then... When does this click happen in you where you're like, well, I now have... <laughs> it's not just the time, it's the mental energy to like... I'm going to do this big rollout of pricing and, and, and charging people for this product. 
How long did you wait on that? I think it was about three months. And so after the initial two weeks of being in hospital full time, I think I sent out an email to all the people who were using Sanity Check, as it was called then, and just said, look, this is what happened. Because I'd become quite good friends with these people as well, <laughs> because I, I know them in face, from Facebook communities and they've been using it all and we've been emailing backwards and forwards and stuff. They kind of been, they've been emailing in over those couple of weeks and like they hadn't heard from me. So I kind of just let everyone know what was going on. And so it was quite nice actually over that 18 month period of Isabel's treatment, I'd keep people updated how she was doing, which was really nice. And so in, in hospital, I kind of had my laptop with me, not a lot of time to use it apart from in the evenings and late at night, but there was a lot of time of, of doing nothing where I could kind of think and plan. And so there was a lot of time of planning and thinking things out on paper. And so, you know, when you sit down at your computer and you just, you'll bash something out, but then you realize you're working on the wrong thing or you'll go back and forth between different things. I kind of did all of that thinking away from the computer and on pen and paper and so on. So that when I did have a bit of time to work, it was kind of like I knew exactly what I was going to do and, and get done. And so, yeah, looking back on that time, I kind of, I was probably as productive as I would have been in, in terms of if I was in, a, in front of a computer for the full time just because I did all of my thinking away from the computer. So then when I, went, I had, when I had two hours to work, it was really focused work that I made sure I got done what I wanted to get done and had it all planned out. Yeah, that's super interesting. So then you had all this, I think of it like cocking a bow or put, like you're just pulling back this, this crossbow and getting ready to like let it go and launch this. So you do, you start charging, you let people know this is, this is the pricing. Now, the first question I have is, did you only charge for additional features or did you charge people for stuff they were already, had already been getting for free for six months? And then the second question is, how did it all work out? So it was, there was no, nothing free. We went just to having a paid plan. So we went from free beta to there being a 14-day trial. And then you'd start paying after those 14 days of trialing the product out. And it went well. There was, there was an initial surge of customers, obviously, from the people that had been using it as a free beta. And then, obviously, after the first couple of months where you get that big surge, <laughs> you kind of get a bit of a reset. And then it's then you realize that you need to do some marketing and letting other people know about the tool. And you kind of start this, the slow SaaS ramp of death from that point. <laughs> I want to call something out because it sounds like from the start, you had said, this is a free beta but we will charge for this. It wasn't, this is a free tool and suddenly you started charging for it because that's a mistake I see a lot of folks make. Were you pretty intentional about communicating to everyone like it's free for now? Yeah, I mean, we had that on the, the landing page, probably the registration page and so on. So I didn't want to, you know, set people's expectations that this was going to be a free beta forever and then do a bait and switch, whatever it's called and, and say, hey, you need to start charging now. It's always going to be, we're going to, this is going to be a paid product at some point. It, it, it's an interesting question as to if no one had paid for it, what I'd have done then, whether I'd have <laughs> switched back to a free because of my, you know, the thing I said about just wanting to help, like enjoying helping people and building things that people find useful, what I'd have done then. But yeah, it was always, we were always very upfront about we're going to charge. And it's interesting, I keep going backwards and forwards between I and we, but it was only me at that particular time. So <laughs> it's funny. Right. Sometimes it's hard. And now you have, yeah, co-founder Phil. And so were you happy with that initial, you know, I'll call it a launch, in essence, a paid launch. And did it get you, what, to a few thousand MRR? Yeah, it got to a couple of thousand monthly recurring revenue. I mean, it continued to grow then and it did well. Uh, we did quite well with some paid Twitter advertising. So Twitter's good in terms of a, a SEO community again. I say good, like there's lots of moaning and shouting and arguing on there, but there are lots of SEO people on Twitter, which is when people are all together in one place, it's a good place to be able to do some advertising or so on. And so we got some initial traction on Twitter. 
Word of mouth has always been good. So people like speaking about the good tools that they're finding to help them with their SEO work. So we've always had good kind of word of mouth marketing, which I know is difficult to scale, but it's invaluable, I guess, from a thing you can't buy or pay for. <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes sense or is right. But yeah, so it continued to grow slowly. It's funny because when we were working on Microsoft SharePoint, we were building on someone else's platform and every two or three years, they'd release a new version of SharePoint that would eat away at our, our features and things that we built. And so I always said, I'm never going to build on someone else's platform. We obviously did in terms of building on Google Search Console API. And so a main part of the tool at this point was the archiving of the data, because only three months of data was available in Search Console. In January after, so this would have been 2018, they launched 18 months worth of data for everybody. So that had an impact then in terms of plans for the tool, what we were going to do with it. We didn't know what was going to happen in terms of people having all that data available, but it kind of, it had a long-term impact on our eventual plans of what we were going to do with it and so on. Platform risk is, you, you kind of can't get away from it because so with, with Hittail, which was the SEO tool that you mentioned earlier that used Search Console, I was using a, it was an unofficial API to scrape Search Console and they would break it about every year or so. And so I'd have to go in and hack, you know, hack the code to fix it. And so I was frustrated with that and said, next company I start, no platform risk. And then you start an ESP and you're like, I send emails and I can use you know, Mailgun or SendGrid or whatever I want to do, spin up my own servers if I need to, no platform risk. Well, the platform there are the blacklists, the spam list, right? And they are run by just random people. And so, like one person sent an email to like the head of one of these lists and said, these guys are letting people send spam and they, they blocked us. Like with no judge, jury, they, they were like the executioner and they're just like, screw you. And they're one of the top 10 or top five in the world, you know? So it was like all of a sudden RIPs were blocked and SendGrid's freaking out because they're SendGrid's IPs at the time, you know? And it's just like, there's kind of platform risk everywhere is the unfortunate, the, you know, the unfortunate reality. It's just, I think there's different grades of it, right? Different levels. So you start having success. The tool is called Sanity Check at the time. At a certain point, you rename it to SEO testing. And you got the .com for that, which is a great domain. Talk me through that, either the thought process, if the domain suddenly appeared and you're like, that's it, or if you were, if sanity check, you're like, eh, this just isn't it long-term and you went out seeking it. There are a few things really. So because we were archiving lots of Search Console data, the database was getting quite big. <laughs> and I'm a developer, not a database administrator. So at some point I knew this was going to going to become an issue and I was going to have some sleepless nights about it. So there was a thought process of, well, now there's 18 months worth of data available in Search Console anyway, do I need to be archiving all this data? So that was one, one part of the thought process. The second thing was we'd kind of plateaued in monthly recurring revenue and it started to get harder and harder in terms of getting new customers. So I kind of got to the point where I did a bunch of customer interviews. I looked at some data. So what good customers or successful customers were using the tool for. And it all came back to the SEO testing functionality within the tool. They didn't really care about the archiving of the data anymore. 18 months worth of data was more than enough for a lot of people. And, and SEO and Google changed so much that data from 18 months plus ago anyway isn't worth that much. It's not as valuable as it used to be because of the changes in the search result pages that are going on. So having that, that data from the customer interviews Positioning was a big thing at the time, as it still is now. So I think April Dunford's book had just come out. So I'd read that. I actually arranged a call with Asia Orangio. So from her agency, she was doing free 30-minute consultation calls. So I got a call booked with her, jumped on a call, 
And I said what I was thinking of doing about focusing on the SEO testing bit of functionality. I also said as well to her, and we had been getting this feedback from customers, because we had added ad hoc reports that people were requesting, people were seeing it as a general SEO tool or were thinking it as a general SEO tool. And so they were asking, how does this compare to Ahrefs? How does it compare to SEMrush? And I don't want to compete with those those companies. You know, one's a publicly listed company, one's a, a massive company. And I, I'm a customer of Ahrefs as well, so I use their backlink data and bits and pieces. We were never going to go into that space that they occupy, but people were comparing us against those. So I said to Asia, I'm thinking of positioning myself as an SEO testing tool to move move myself away from being compared to those other tools, those other bigger tools. And she said, that's a great idea, positioning yourself away from competitors is a thing to do. And so she was kind of like, gave it a thumbs up as an idea. So the idea was then to focus on the SEO testing functionality. You then, I say you as in, you would probably think of doing the same thing. You just start checking domain names. And so I just checked SEO testing randomly. And I think it was for sale on one of the domain name marketplaces. So I, I made an offer, quite a low offer, I think, to start with. And um, they came back and said, it's too low, but here's a counter offer of, I think it's 2,500 US dollars, which I thought was good value for money. Oh, that's that's a steal. Yeah, and so he was quite open. He said, look, I'm an IT person as well. I'm a marketeer. I think you'll do some interesting stuff with it. I just want to see the domain name put to use, which is from a people that own domain names and kind of market them and sell them is a, a different, you don't usually get that kind of take from people. So I was very gratefully bought it off him. And uh, that kind of made the decision to go the SEO testing route, kind of cemented it. I then decided to rebuild the app from scratch, which was, you know, we can go back and forth on whether that was a wise decision or not. But I needed to remove a big part of the archiving functionality um, that was in Sanity Check and work directly with the, S, the Search Console API. So it made sense to rebuild it from scratch. But throughout those four months of rebuilding, I was kind of like, is this the right decision from a positioning point of view as much as a, should I be rewriting it from scratch point of view? But yeah, that's a big risk. I mean, in retrospect, it seems to me like it was the right decision. Is it, you agree? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you've got the question about product market fit. And my kind of answer is I don't feel with sanity check, we ever got ever got to product market fit, but with SEO testing from launching paid plans on that, because I did a, a small free beta on that as well, because COVID hit at exactly the week that we were launching SEO testing. So I was at a point again where I was going to launch paid plans for a tool and, and something big happened that I had to kind of change those plans. But from the, the point of SEO testing, launching paid plans, within nine months, we got to the same monthly recurring revenue point that Sanity Check had got to in two and a half years. And so although a lot of the functionality was the same within the tools, just the naming and the positioning of the tool just made it a lot clearer to people what it was we were doing. Uh, and it made more sense to them. Yeah, and I mean, that does lead me to our Startup to the Rest of Us segment. Nick, when did you know you had product market fit? And when I say when, by the way, just for, just for the record, when is not just like, well, April of 2020, because that's not actually helpful, but it's like when and how. What were the signs where you felt like, huh, this is really working. I have built something people want and are willing to pay for. And folks who listen to this podcast know that I, I ask this question a little tongue in cheek because product market fit is not, I don't believe it's a binary, it is a continuum. And so it's almost like, when did you believe you started having stronger product market fit. You know, we could say there's like one to 10 and when did you hit a six or seven or whatever. But it's just in terms of like, when did things really feel like they were clicking? And it's like, huh, we are solving a problem for a lot of people. People are willing to pay for it. And now it's more like, how do we get in front of more people? Yeah, it was definitely when we matched the sanity check 
monthly recurring revenue within nine months. But also I'd say this isn't a, a quantifiable thing, but it was just a feeling. It was just people understood the product more. They knew what they were signing up for. It was just an easier sell. And so pretty quickly within terms of launching SEO testing, I knew it was the right decision in terms of a, a positioning thing, but then also in terms of a product market fit, it was definitely a, a, a the right decision. And as we move towards wrapping up, I want to cover one topic that I think will be interesting to folks. And it's you took on a co-founder, Phil, who you've mentioned a couple times, but a late co-founder because you started building in 2015-16 and Phil came on in 2020-2021. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so what was your decision-making process there of bringing another individual who has enough equity in a company that, that you refer to him as, as your co-founder? So when I started building the first version of SEO testing, my previous software company, we'd got up to 20 people. The affiliate marketing website, we had 15 people. I just had enough of managing people and doing HR type things. And so with Sanity Check, I decided as an experiment, I was just going to run it as a one-person software company just to see how big I could grow it as one person. So I did make use of contractors and freelancers to help out with various design tasks and things like that. But we got to a reasonable monthly career in revenue just as me. But a lot of people will think this is the dream in terms of waking up and deciding what you want to work on. But that kind of is good for so long. And then you kind of, you need a bit of direction. So I kind of made the decision the summer of last year to grow a team. I was just tired of tired, bored, whichever way you want to put it, of working by myself. I wanted people to brainstorm with, to celebrate the victories with, all that kind of stuff. And so I made the decision that I was going to, to build a team. And I first of all looked at who I, who I know already and who I've enjoyed working with in the past. And Phil was one of those people he was building his own SaaS tool, but he hadn't quite got any traction on it yet. So I said to him, you know, do you fancy doing some contracting on some specific bits of functionality we want built? So he started doing it on that basis to start with. And we got along so well, I was like, look, do you want to come on board full time? You can take technical co-founder status. There's a chance of going through this tiny seed route, which will be, you know, good for you from SEO testing perspective, but also in what you want to do in the future in terms of building your own SaaS tool as well. And so We've kind of gone on from that point and it's uh, it's going well. To the point I've got to say, actually, last Monday, I committed to not writing any code anymore. So <laughs> well, that's a big step for a developer who's been writing for a decade or two. How does that how does that feel? It actually feels really good. <laughs> like I know when we got together in London for the tiny seed get together, this was one of my concerns around I should be spending more time marketing, but I enjoy coding. And I've actually got to the point now where I want to stop coding and I want to spend more time on marketing, which I think is a nice place to be in. Yeah, and I I went through the same process, right? And it, people would ask me for years and years, what do you do? I'm a developer, I'm a developer. And suddenly I was like, uh-oh, I still, I still say I'm a developer, but I'm not actually writing code anymore. And so I think it can be part of our identity and leaving that behind can be challenging, but I know that you'd been thinking about it for a long time. I don't think this is something that suddenly came out of the blue. No, I, to prepare for this interview, interestingly, I went through the past two years of journals. So I, I write a journal every couple of times a week or so on with thoughts about what's going on and so on. And the past year was, right, this, this is a marketing week. I need to focus on marketing. I need to get some marketing done. And that was like a reoccurring theme. And I can see that, that although that was my aim for that week, I didn't get much marketing work done. So having read those, read through those journals, I felt a real sense of frustration. 
and kind of dropping the code is something I need to do to, to for us to make progress. Because it's not just me now, there's a team around SEO testing. We've taken a commitment to Tiny Seed in terms of taking some investment and, and growing the business. So it's just, it feels like the right, the right time for me and the right thing to do as well. Nick, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. If folks want to keep up with you on Twitter, you are Nick Swan, spelled just like it sounds. And of course, seotesting.com if they want to see what you're working on. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening and subscribing to this podcast. It's amazing being able to put myself into a creative endeavor like this and have so many folks tuning in and getting value and inspiration, strategies and tactics from the work that we're doing here. So thanks for listening all these months or years, however long you've been around. I hope you're enjoying Tiny Seed Tales Season 3. We have another couple episodes of that season before we wrap it So I'll be back in your ears again, same time, same place next week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 626. 